Hey folks, this is your friendly neighborhood producer, Tim. I uh, just wanted to pop in for a quick minute to give some context to what you're about to listen to here. This isn't a normal podcast with the three of us sitting in different states discussing a topic. Rather, this is actually a live event that Mike and Bonnie spoke at back in October on the 18th called Heated. And they were invited to come up and have a conversation about why they changed their minds about women in leadership within the church. This was a live event from last month on October 18th. The event itself was also filmed, and we will have a link to that in our bio on Instagram, and we'll also post it on Facebook if you'd like to watch it. Without further ado, here's Mike Erie and Bonnie Lewis at Heated. Hi! I'm so happy to see you guys. I feel like... I have seen most of you in other events, so this feels really fun. And to be in the same room with you. We podcast, but via Zoom. So everyone's like in their pajamas. (laughs) Or just black. So that's worked out well. But I think it's good. If if it's not broken, don't change it. Um, So uh, women in ministry, women in leadership. Uh, One thing I learned really early on is that there's a cost. Cost is woven into this whole thing. There's a cost if you believe that women have an equal seat, and there's a cost if you don't. So the question isn't, is there a cost? It's, can we make peace with that? Um, I'm going to tell you a story. So uh, I went to college right up the road at Chapman University. Oh, yes, you too. I don't think I'd get in now, but I got in then, (laughs) so I'm sticking to it. Um, And I met a friend there, and we quickly became roommates. And both of us were from out of state, so we did things that roommates who aren't from California do. We went to the beach, and we drove for long times with the windows down and with their music loud, and we talked about everything. Um, we had really different schedules. She was, a, I think, a music major, and I was a religion major, so I went to bed like when her friends got amped up. Um, but occasionally, like three or four times during the week, we would sort of cross paths in our uh, house we rented, And without even asking, I would sit down at the table and she would pull out this, uh, like, array of sandwich things. And there was bread and she had condiments and she had turkey and she had spinach and she had a way of stacking all the sandwich things. So every bite you got, you got a bite of everything. Do you know what I mean? It was like the actual perfect sandwich. And she also didn't like to do dishes. So she would... uh, make the sandwiches, cut it in half, and then she would give it to me on a paper napkin. And like we just would talk about how genius that was because it's your plate and your napkin. (laughs) And we did that for years. We met over these perfectly designed sandwiches, and we just talked about everything. And eventually, we each got married. We were at each other's weddings. Our kids were, um, oh, thank you so much. 
No, you're good. Thank you. Yeah, um, their ki our kids are six months apart, and we just like continued the tradition. She would come over as new moms, and she would sit at my kitchen table and make those sandwiches, and we still refused plates, and um, it just felt like we were turning the pages together. And then one week, uh, right before I graduated from seminary, she didn't come over. And I had texted her, I didn't hear back. And then I was sitting at the table, actually, after I had put my son to bed. It was the same table that we had sat at just a week before. And instead of getting a text message or a promise of like another meal together, I got an email from her husband. And the email said, I know that you think it's okay to graduate and attend and graduate seminary, um, but I want you to know it's not. Um, it's not okay to be a woman in leadership. And if you continue to do that, you will go to hell, and everybody that you come in contact with and that listens to you will also go to hell. And it was this moment like, have you ever felt that thing where it feels like you have been punched in the gut? Like, I'm like my body reacted before my brain did. I'm sweating. I'm crying. Like, I cannot breathe. Because in reality, what, she was, what he was saying was everything you had done for the past two years and all the stuff that we had talked about, like, I thought we were turning the page together and we weren't. And that would have been okay, except for the fact that I went, we went to their house, me and my husband, and I was six months pregnant at the time. And we went there, and um, I'm sitting there on the couch, and I'm crying. And I um, am talking to him about what he meant when he said those things, because all I can remember is hell, sin, word of God, heretic. And it was so interesting because in that moment, he starts talking to me about what the text says. So he's talking to me about every passage that's ever been quoted to any of us, and he is reading the words on the page. And I am sitting there, and I'm talking to him about all the white space around those words. I'm talking to him about what it means to live that out, what it meant to wrestle with it, what it meant to read between the lines and to figure out what am I supposed to do if I've been raised one way, but the Spirit has called me another way. But he just couldn't hear that. Because sometimes when we talk about these things, we make the thing about the person, and so then that person actually becomes the thing. So I'm sitting across from him, and I'm trying to talk to him about who I am as a person, but all he can see is something I believe in. And so years went on, and um, it's been a while since we've talked to them. We interacted a few times, but we never made sandwiches like that again. Um, there's a cost. There was a cost for me. There was a cost for them. Um, and so our hope tonight is that when, we, like, of course, Erie's going to do his thing and talk about the text. Um, 
and that's why we're here. Uh, but also, we hope that if we dive deep enough into our stories, that you can find part of your story. Because what we're talking about is we're talking about women in ministry, and we're talking about what the text says, and we're talking about theological stances and exegesis, and we're talking about all those things, but what we're actually talking about is humans. And we're actually talking about our moms and our daughters and our sisters and our wives and our friends and like 75% of the church. So if we can remember tonight and as we go forward that these are real humans we're dealing with, they're not systems or people that just believe in systems, then we think we can make some real advancements. Wow. Was it, did, did your friend believe this too or was it more the husband? That's a great question. Um, that was never made clear, only because the faith they led was very much, I just believe what my husband believes. So she didn't ever really say much, um, uh, which uh, I think was just part of it for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then out of seminary. Yeah. So um, seminary was a weird period for me. I like was grappling with this idea that I could preach and teach, um, but I didn't feel like I could so I was like oh I know what I'll do I'll start a baking blog <laughs> and the like the problem with that is that like I can make 10 things and none of them are hard or compelling <laughs> and what it really was is like let's make this thing and then just like slap a sermon in there and call it a day and so um, that was a confusing period for me. Uh, and for everyone else that read it. <laughs> Wait, what? Um, so after seminary, um, it was just like a journey. My, I was so confused. I had people telling me you can do it. I had churches saying, no, just kidding, you can't. Um, and so it was, it was tough because it was an interesting road to walk when I felt really called and I had leaders like you tell me you're gifted you can do this um like it's okay but then larger systems telling me it's not mm -hmm. um so I spent a period of time baking kind of and then also reading and discussing and trying to figure <laughs> out what it was like and then finally I decided I could do that and I just kind of started stepping into it um didn't, like Brenda said, I didn't like have any answers. I definitely didn't have any churches. This, the uh, evangelical community that I was a part of just didn't offer a space for me. So um, I kind of went like rogue for a while. I didn't attend a church because there was not a place for me. So um, it really wasn't until you offered me a job that I stepped back into church and realized like, okay, this is it for you. Like, this is the line you're going to draw in the sand, um, and you are no longer going to work or attend churches that don't allow women to speak. I want you to keep going. I, <laughs> I, you wanted to, I don't know, ask a question again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's, it's funny because we, we got a couple reactions um, that you changed your mind. Like, it would just be, I think, assumed that you yeah, would... that's a good point. Okay, so I started... Um, <laughs> sorry, I like forgot. I mean, I guess that's why we're here. Um, <laughs> so I grew up in an ev uh, like an evangelical community, non-denominational. It just, it wasn't an explicit no for women, but it was also never modeled. 
Um, and so when I was in seminary, I started realizing like, hey, I can, I can, I think I like this and I think I can do it. And what was interesting, actually, we had a preaching class in seminary, which is the like actual worst thing ever. Cause you're sitting just like 10 students and they're like have a notepad to take notes on you. And you're like in this tiny room and you're just like sweating and you have a dry mouth and it's awful and you're supposed to preach. And so uh, I preached, you do it twice in the semester. And I preached, and the first time, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, it's terrible. The first time um, I got like feedback, and I got two feedback cards that said, this would have been great, but you're not allowed to preach, so it was bad. <laughs> That's odd. Um, and so I just was like, I don't know what to do with that. And so then you had to preach again, and I thought, oh gosh, here we go. And so, again, you get your feedback cards in, and I was missing two. So I thought, oh, no, like, they're coming at me. Um, and they, both of them came up to me separately and said, like, hey, I didn't write this down because it's better to say to you. Um, but last time, I was the one that said you shouldn't preach. And I was like, yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> I've been avoiding you all semester. Um, and they were like... Uh, but to be honest, I just had never seen a woman do it, and I had never seen a woman do it well. And I had never seen a woman do it and felt the Holy Spirit say, like, pay attention. So they actually both separately had, like, spent the entire semester studying it and figuring it out. And so the second time I preached, they both pulled me aside to tell me they had changed their mind. And so that was a moment for me where I realized, like, the Holy Spirit's working beyond everything I had ever been reading and told to read a certain way. So I did the thing. I checked out all the books, um, and I spent probably the next, like, eight years making peace with it. Like, it, just because I felt called to do it didn't mean I also immediately um, was fully convinced through, like, a scriptural lens, and just because that's the way I was trained, like, that's the way I wanted to approach it. Um, and so my journey was really marked by a series of studying, of asking questions, of uh, paying attention to the spirit, of um, saying yes when I felt like there was an opportunity, and walking alongside like other people and other mentors who were cheering me on even when it felt super hard. Awesome. Do you want to keep going? No. Okay. Um, you know, it, it, uh, we've gotten some, some grief today for, in another context, for using words like privilege or whatever. And, um, you know, not ever having to walk that road. I don't, I, I don't know of another word that describes the fact that I had, I've had plenty of people walk out on sermons, for sure. <laughs> um, but not because I was a man. And um, so I didn't know the full fullness of that story. I mean, I, and, and I, um, as we become more vocal about this, there are some unbelievably tra I, tragic, seems too cliche, but really hard, like, yeah. stories that some of you have walked. And I'm, you know, I'm just sorry. Um, like you, I kind of inherited, well, I came from a very, very conservative church background. I mean, this was like foot washing, um, men in one room, women in the other room, four times a year, like 
don't mess. Um, uh, yeah, it, it was it was intense. I remember the first time somebody raised their hands during worship, and I kid you not, I mean that was the topic of conversation all week um, in the elder board in our family. I mean it was so so I don't come from a background, and then I um, went to Talbot, which is very very complementarian. And, um, and that was just kind of what we inherited. I, I worked at Mariners, um, and, and there was, in, at Mariners, every now and again, a woman would teach. They had female pastors. They just restricted uh, kind of elders. And so when I went to Rock Harbor, that was the sort of default setting. And we wanted to, to walk that line. As, so we had an elder meeting that w- was just the fellows on one, on, on one meeting, and then a different meeting that was the couples. And we wanted to, you know, we wanted to try to walk as close as we could to that. For me, then, moving on um, to different faith communities, uh, the, the biggest thing that happened was I, I was um, serving at a community where women had not been allowed to serve communion ever. And, um, you know, and it was just one of those, like, and I asked the, the elder board, uh, fine, just show me the verse that says, you know, that they can't do that. And they admitted, they were very courageous. They just said, no, it's a cultural, cultural thing. But that tapped me in, uh, that and some other things that I don't want to share, tapped me into an undercurrent of, hold on a second. And then, and then there were examples of just rampant hypocrisy with the complementarian position. Um, we can, we cannot have female pastors for Americans, but if you're a missionary, you know, they're, those people, they're just fine. Well, and like, pause, A, that's hypocritical, right? Well, it's insulting to but both. But B, what does that say to them? Oh yeah. It's yeah. awful. Oh, it's awful. In every way. I mean, every way. Totally not the missionary heart of, of Paul. So you see a bit of the hypocrisy working out, and, and not that there is an hypocrisy elsewhere, because certainly there is. Um, but I saw the inconsistency, and I saw that complementarians would draw lines differently, and they all seemed arbitrary. Women could teach youth group, but then once they hit men hit 18, they could not be taught by women. Women could teach in the, you know, I mean, it was just, and, and, and the, the appeals to scripture um, seemed ad hoc. And that just means afterwards, after the, you know, after they decided, I can now justify it. So I had no external pressure to revisit this. I had no faith community that was pushing me. I had nobody in my life that was after me about this. Um, I ended up doing some work in Genesis, because to me, the 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 all the the references came back to creation, and I was doing some work. Just I wanted to do a series, and I realized, oh. That Genesis thing, it's a bit more complicated than all of my uh, complementarians' friends suggested. And then, once you start fiddling with creation order, that takes you directly into the two times Paul mentions it, which happened to be when he seemingly restricts women speaking in the gathered community. And, um, and so ultimately, for me, uh, it wasn't an external thing. It was, uh, and, and people just don't believe it, but it was actually... Um, it was the text that just said, no, I, I really think there's, and, and, and I need to say, just for the sake of 
intellectual honesty. I mean, there are some really good people who are going to disagree, of course, with everything we say. And it's not that they're bad or not that they don't love Jesus. Some of the people I know who are really wrestling through this want desperately to honor the Bible. And the, the view that they've been given of the Bible was represented by the last complementarian speaker we had who got to second, or First Timothy and just said, well, there it is in English. And literally, that's what he said. And it's funny because when Deborah came up as somebody in the Old Testament who had leadership, he wanted to go into some background to explain why that was happening. But when we get to Timothy... It's a completely different standard. And, um, and so I, I just want to say, well, I, I think there's room to be consistent. I think the Bible, and I'll just give you my point, and then we can go from there. The Bible, of course, accommodates the patriarchy. It's all over the place. You can't, you can't ignore the fact that Adam is treated differently than Eve. Adam is mentioned differently than Eve. I mean, you just, that's true. The question is, is that the ideal or is that the accommodation? And obviously, obviously, from all, all kinds of stuff we'll look at, it is the accommodation because the arc of the scripture is towards the full and fair equality of men and women, not their sameness, but their equality and dignity as co-creators and procreators co-governing with God. And so the arc actually is back to Genesis, which is, is what the complementarian said. And I totally agree, but there's no hierarchy there. So um, uh, we can get into more specifics, but what I think Paul is doing in these passages, very simply, is the equivalent, if you, Bonnie, were going to Afghanistan and you're going as a missionary, I would strongly encourage you to wear a head covering. I would encourage you to not talk to men that you don't know. I would encourage you to be with a man always and under the presence of that male sort of headship in that context. Why? So that the gospel will gain a hearing. That is the thing that drives Paul that is very uh, rarely appreciated, that he, especially in the pastoral letters, and I, I mean, I literally want to read 1 Timothy because it's so thick through the book that he's fighting a heresy and he hints about it and then he wants to make the gospel beautiful. Um, and so he does what any good missionary does. They, they accommodate a reality that isn't ideal but plant the seeds of gospel revolution. They unleash gospel dynamics in household codes that were approved by Aristotle and supported by Roman law, but yet, and so yes, is there an accommodation patriarchy? Absolutely, absolutely. In some cases, head does mean authority. In some cases, head doesn't mean authority at all. That's fine. But the bigger question is always, is that the ideal or is that the accommodation? And so the argument we want to make tonight is that is the accommodation, and I think there are good reasons why. Does anyone want to ask a question? It's coming to you. Hey, thank you. I'm Ben Appleby. I'm a pastor down the street. So, hey, hey, guys. Thanks for being here. I want to say quickly uh, two words. Uh, first, sorry, Bonnie. Just to quote Mike, um, on behalf of the church family, you should have had sorry. Thank yeah. you. And also, uh, thank you. You guys influence the show, and you guys has had more than just an individual touch, but on a, a whole church organization. So thanks for doing what you're doing. 
Here's a question right from one of the elders. I'll try and go slow. It's not a ton of words, but there are some Greek words in there. Yeah. So I'm just going to go slow. Yeah. He says, besides the diakonos role of Phoebe, yeah. can we think of any biblical reference of women in presbyteros, episkopoi, or apostolos position? Well, yeah, Junia, Junia okay. is number one in, right, right. in Romans 16 yeah. as an apostle. Cool. But then you have, and, and I can pull the reference, but there are a number of house church leaders who are women. And we have evidence by the way Paul writes to men who are house church leaders that the, the home, the host, actually served as the shepherd of that community. So when he talks about Stephanus and he talks about Chloe and he speaks of them equally, the picture that we're given there is that they're actually shepherding the community. Secondly, I love Joy. Joy, you're so awesome. She's back there going, yep, and don't forget this, and just remember this part, and just absolutely. But then you have, then you have Phoebe, who not only was the deacon, but as the bearer of the letter to Rome, uh, of Romans to Rome, she would have been the one, quite naturally and culturally, who would have interpreted it and read it. Uh, but then you have the prophet or the, 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 the gals that are prophesying in first Corinthians. Now, again, uh, that word is broad and can mean a lot of different things. But one of the things it does mean is that the, it served a, a, a shepherding function that you weren't just prophesying for you. You were prophesying for the sake of the building up of the body. And so I do think there are clear counter examples. Absolutely. The Jew, the, 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 Juni, uh, the Julia uh, one, and I keep wanting to say it in Greek, the Junia one, that one's pretty big because that has been suppressed in a lot of translation. Um, and and um, to be, it, it, you can understand it as outstanding among the apostles or outstanding as kind of known by the apostles. But regardless, Paul just doesn't, he doesn't have the hierarchy when he's naming people. Like it's like 16 of 18 women named in Romans or something. I mean, it's joy. Is that right? Just checking my work. Um, so, so, uh, I, so I would say, yes, it's indirect evidence. The junior one is absolutely direct. Um, the house church thing, I think, is absolutely, absolutely um, uh, like slam dunk. That's good. And his follow-up, sorry, Mike, just to tie it in now, because that no, no, answers no. the second part, no. too. But he wants to know how that relates to Ephesians 4 and, and the elder office. So I think you already answered it. There's evidence, and they were definitely shepherding. They were gatekeeping, which is what it we seems would call that elders. Way. Yeah. Okay. Now, now, the question is always, why, why isn't it clearer? Right? Because to me, what I want to do, and this is how I approach a big theological topic, what best explains all the data? I want to do right by the data. So I have a verse that says this, and I have a verse that says this. And very often, the verses are in tension with each other. And so, so what is it? So for me, it's the now and not yet of the, the movement of the kingdom. And so the now of the kingdom is that the Holy Spirit has been poured out on men and women alike, and they prophesy and that whole thing. The not yet is that we still live under the curse of Genesis 3. And Paul is accommodating as we move. But it's fascinating when you look at 1 Corinthians, there is a creed uh, in 1 Corinthians 15 where it talks about all of the appearances uh, that Jesus made to the apostles. Um, and it just conveniently skips what's clearly recorded in all the gospels, namely that the women were the first ones um, to see. 
the risen Jesus. And so there's a sense in which I, I don't, I'm not a Da Vinci Code guy, but, but uh, even on some of the First Corinthians stuff, there are, there are evidences of glosses that are done by later translators to try to even out um, the priority of women. And the junior thing, I mean, Joy can fill you in on that. That's been, that's been decades long debate about, because somebody tried to change that to a masculine name back in the day. So anyway, all that is to say, I do think they're examples. Do you want to add anything to that? No. The other thing, the other thing I would add is this, depending on how you understand gift and office. So, so I used to, and one of the arguments I made in this white paper was there's a difference between gift and office. You can be gifted as a teacher, but not necessarily have the teaching office in the church. And I, and I really have come to rethink that a little bit, um, because whenever Paul talks about spiritual gifts, even leadership gifts, he never, ever, ever, except for Timothy, and we can talk about that, qualifies them regard to, in, regarding to, uh, in regard to gender. So he never just says, hey, hey, during the lists, okay, guys, you're good with this. Ladies, you're, this is your list over here helps. I mean, he never does anything like that. So I would say there's all sorts of indirect evidence. A great question from your elder. Well, hello. Daniel. Um, so I, stand up, got it. Um, I just texted Josh Harrison this the other day. Um, somebody I think you know. First uh, Corinthians 4, I said, can you help me with something? It's quite concerning. First um, Corinthians 14, 37 through 38, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. That is preceded by 34 through 36, the women are to keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves just as, they, as the law also says dot, 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 um, going on to say your husband, uh, ask your husband if you don't understand. My end of that text was, I don't agree with Paul that women are not also prophets, but he says, this is the Lord's command. And that like totally threw me off. So elaborate. Oh, so Josh <laughs> and I would have a great time talking about this because the word that's used there for silent, at least in my NIV, is used two other times in that flow of thought. It's used of prophets, male or female, if another person, like if, if uh, well, in fact, I'll just pull it out. How about that? I've just been waiting. <laughs> Give me some First Corinthians. Because this is a classic, classic example, my friend, of not reading in context. Because there are three groups of people told to be silent. And the same word is used in all three instances. And they're all contingent silences. Even the Greek word doesn't mean a full and permanent silence. It has the sense of taking your seat and waiting your turn. So check this out, sucker. Tell us like what you really think about that. Well, no, I mean, because I, I no, but these are the arguments I would make. I know, I'm just, I'm just playing. I mean, that's why, can you? All right. All right. So, 1428, a tongue speaker, male or female, is to be silent and to stop speaking in tongues if there's no one to interpret. Okay? Then, a prophet, male or female, is to be silent and stop prophesying if someone else has a revelation. And then, thirdly, women are to be silent in church, but then what's the then after that statement? It's to ask your husbands at home. If you have questions, in fact, the, the word silent and the word learn 
that sentence are tied to, uh, to 1 Timothy 2, where the exact same words are used there in terms of silence for learning. So this, I mean, of all the passages that should worry you about women in ministry, this is the least concerning. Because, because literally, it's a command in the flow of Corinthians given two other times about order in worship. It has nothing to do with headship. It has nothing to do with hierarchy. It has everything to do with how the worship service is conducted orderly. Make sense? Yeah. So just read so the rest of the chapter. That, no, yeah, that, that totally helps me because I was totally willing to just throw it out. Like, nope, I don't agree with Paul. And like, go on with I believe in, but... I would, if you you and Paul ever disagree and you rightly understand Paul, I'd go with Paul, but I don't, (laughs) that's typically my case, but that one was like, that just throws me off and I don't like that. So whatever. (laughs) And this is where, you know, we have to be careful to special pleading, right? We decide ahead of time what we're for and against and then look for evidence. That's why you have to practice something that I, that I, I've, it's called inference to the best explanation. What counts for all the biblical data? There is patriarchy in the scripture, and it's validated. What do you do with that? Yeah, I just want to say a word about that. I used to like hate Paul and think he was such a jerk. <laughs> and um, then I like just did the work, and <laughs> I did. Um, and then I just did the work, and I realized, like, oh, I was reading a lot of like my own standards in into the text. So where I thought Paul was limiting is actually the opposite. Paul's actually like pushing the boundaries and the envelope and being so subversive. We just don't have a correct understanding of like what that culture was actually like. Yeah, but and that's where it's disingenuous just to say, well, it says in English. That's just not, that's not how this works. Because it also says, don't eat pork in English. <laughs> and it also says, greet each other with a holy kiss. And I mean, right? You just, we all know the Bible doesn't work like that. And so it, I just, I don't respect, I, don't, I just don't think that's intellectually honest when every single, yes. So if that's cultural, why are we translating that? Okay, sorry. So if that's cultural, why are we translating that? that? The hierarchy, the order, which to me just doesn't seem right anyway. So why are we translating that into our culture now? Can we simply say that's a By the church or in general? I I think it's in general too. I mean, I think it does translate outside of the church and we're dealing with that now because this is a bigger issue. The church is here. The world is here. Yeah. And we want to influence the here. Yeah, absolutely. But we are struggling influencing the here. Yeah. So if that's cultural, why can't we just simply say that's that culture? Oh, beautiful. Um, it's, many of us do, first of all. But secondly, one of the things that Genesis 3, and this was again referenced in previous heateds, um, one of the, and this is a super fascinating question for another time, why does God judge the woman, or at least level, whatever those are, curses or judgments against the woman, against the man, against the serpent. One of them is patriarchy, that the the wife will desire the husband and and the husband will rule over the wife. That is ingrained in fallen human DNA. So there is a sense in which um, we, the church, are to be an outpost of the kingdom to model the reversals that are all coming when Jesus fulfills what's, what's, what's to come, correct? Um, but, but patriarchy has been so ingrained, because I would even argue, and, and one of your joy, one of your, uh, do you know Michelle Lee? So she, um, she wrote a book 
I'm getting back. This is just going to be a thing. But even to read Paul with questions like, who's the boss? Who's the authority? What's the hierarchy here? Like, he's not operating in those terms. Those are very, very Western individualized ideas that we're reading back into Paul. So that you, that, so, so what Paul is introducing, let's say everything complementarians say about headship is true. Paul more radically redefines headship than any position actually can countenance to the point where you wouldn't recognize headship if you saw it. It would look so dramatically different. So her point is, even when you come to these texts, the questions we're asking, are all, we've already defeated ourselves by the questions we're asking. Does that make sense? Yeah, they're our culture. Exactly. So we, it's so ingrained in us that we're, we're viewing it from that way. Absolutely. Well, what we live in currently yes. is patriarchy. Yes. We live in it at work, we live in it at church. Absolutely. Everywhere. And that's part of the fall. It, it, right? And so, so is there a sense in which it will be overthrown? Yeah, right? The reign of Jesus and the advance guard of his people are modeling the p possibility of living in an entirely different way. At least we should be. But there's, an, there's another sense where unless there is a deep drenching in a reimagining of what male-female and those relationships look like, right? We're stuck into the default mode, which is power and authority. And Paul so radically redefines uh, those things that, I mean, we can't even begin to appreciate what he does. Even if you take head, like the man is the head of the woman, what Paul does with that image in Ephesians, like, so the head can, I mean, one of the meanings of head can be preeminent. And, um, and so the head, the head body metaphor was used um, in ancient literature. And very often, and it was ob obvious but well known, that the purpose of the body was to serve the head. The purpose of the head was to sustain, to guide, to lead, direct the body. Um, when Paul says that the husband as the head, and let's say he means authority, is to sacrifice itself for the body, his wife, right? That, that, that would be called by Roman society out of order. That would be disordered. In other words, what Paul is inviting husbands to do is exactly what Jesus did, did not claim the privileges that were his, right, but rather emptied himself and was lifted up by the Father, right? That's, so, so even if you grant all the complementarian points, you're still left with something that looks nothing like a boss. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know if I answered. That was, it's like midnight my time and I'm so tired. <laughs> But does that, does that help yeah, a little bit? Okay, yeah, okay, it okay. Yeah. It helps to highlight just that the, the culture is so ingrained in us. Absolutely. It, it, it's, and I don't know how the fall works out in human nature, but patriarchy is our default. Do you feel like, does everyone feel like they understand when we say patriarchy, like what, what we mean by that? Yes, no? Uh, it literally means father rule. So everything is in favor to the male. So that's literally everything. Everything you do, everything, um, inheritance, anything like that. And so it's in favor to the men in the family and then continuing that line. So we actually see that in other cultures really alive and well today. Um, a lot of times there's like firstborns in another culture 
And we say, like, what is it like? I know someone that said, like, what is it like to be the firstborn? And it was a very prideful, like, um, it's amazing. Because it was, that is a position that they still operate, their culture still operates under. And so um, when we say, like, <clears throat> the default is patriarchy, that's what we mean, is that we're still living under this idea uh, that the men is in charge and everything should default to them and to making sure they stay in charge. You can add. I'm a fan. No. <laughs> Not even remotely. But that's what we're getting at. Yeah. Somebody else? They told me I have to Hi, stand. Paul. Uh, my name is Paul. Hi, Paul. Hi, Paul. Bonnie, you don't like Paul. <laughs> Not. I like you. I remember you. Thank and you. I like Paul now. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, just without a theological description, I think any idea that women are inferior is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard before, based on the women I know and have idolized. It's one of the most insane prehistoric ideas ever. But Mike, um, we both reign from Scott Ray and that little space. Of course. Viola. And, and probably one of the most influential classes I had was when I learned about the difference between prescriptive versus descriptive yeah. scripture. Can you share a little bit about that? Because it's that has been one of the most revolutionary things we don't greet each other with a holy kiss. And when we pray for people, we don't put mud in their eyes. Can you say more about that? Because I think it's such a radical concept that we just generally, or either of you, uh, yeah. we generally miss. Well, make sure I go far enough or we go far okay, enough, yeah. all right? But, but absolutely. So um, one of the reasons why I actually trust the Bible and, and yield to its authority is that it's so unbelievably messy and weird and obscure and that God didn't feel this compulsion to clean it up. And uh, like if I were writing the Bible and I wanted universal prescriptions that were going to be implemented forever, I would have just, I would have just ended with the 10 commandments and said, you know, that's, that's as clear as I can put it guys. Good luck. You know? Um, so I see, I see the honesty of the Bible as a plus um, as it records. Now the difference and the trick part is what it records isn't always what it approves. So it records polygamy all over the place in the Old Testament. And people will make the argument, well, polygamy's in the Bible, so there. But it's not in the Bible in the sense that it's recommended or commended. It's in the Bible in the sense that the Bible's just very honest about the fallenness of human persons. And so Paul brings up a, a fantastic point. So much of the patriarchy we see isn't recommended. It's just describing the culture and what I would argue is the natural state of male-female relationships if they're not redeemed and soaked kind of in the compelling imagination of what Jesus has done to invert those. Does that help? Did I go far enough? You want to add anything, Bonnie? No, that seems good. I'll add if I want to add. I'm good. Okay. <laughs> Hi, Michael. Hey, my, my name is Michael. Um, uh, so one of the most frustrating arguments that I've come across when it came to the idea of egalitarian or complementarian was when the Trinity was brought into it and using that as a model for what we are supposed to follow. And so I felt like that would be something good to dive into because I feel like that's one of those kind of more obscure ones, but if you're not prepared, it might just like kind of hit you at the knees. You're gonna ask? Yeah. Okay. That's a good question. That's a great question. All right. I've heard that many a time. Yes. 
And Joy, would you would you agree? And the reason, so I follow Joy on Twitter. She's a scholar. She's familiar with some of the crazy kids we're talking about. Um, absolutely, we love them. Uh, but would you agree with me? Because what I want to say is that idea of the functional subordination of the sun has been pretty well demolished. Yeah, as, and, and by modern people as heresy. So here's the idea. Um, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is giving women permission to pray and prophesy in the church so long as they cover their heads and there's this fascinating discussion. But again, he's giving them permission to pray and prophesy in the church. That's the point. It's, I mean, okay, head covering's great. Let's talk about that. All right, and the glory of man and all of that. But there's this, there's this thing Paul does where he says, let me find it. Oh, so good. Um, here it is. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man. And the head of Christ is God. And so if you're reading that as hierarchy, because right, the word head can mean that, doesn't have to, but can, well, then what you've got is now you've got a hierarchy in the Trinity. And so there, there have been a couple complementarian authors who, in the name of their being consistent at least, have argued that the Son is eternally subordinate to the Father. That, now, again, this is, we're in some deep water but um, when you start messing with Trinitarian formulas in the name of women's roles, um, uh, you know, the, even, even uh, a number of complementarian scholars were all over that idea. Yeah. And in fact, oh, jump. I was just going to say, um, like, one of the things I always hear is, we, I think it stems from this weird view of God that, because the verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, um, but like we're supposed to be fine with this loving God that like sent his son to die and it's like, I understand it, but it presents this picture of subordination that like, I tell you what to do and you go and do it. Uh, but the language there is actually like God's soul of the world that he gave himself in the form of his son. And so it's, oh man. Yeah. So it's God dying on the cross. Like that's why it works. And, um, so if there's no hierarchy there at all, so it, the, it breaks down on many levels, but it's like, it goes back to some of these fundamental things we've just always been told. And we're like, yeah, that makes sense. But then when you go in, it doesn't make much sense. Yeah. So head, so the passage is totally wacky. Um, I want you to realize the head of every man is Christ. The head of every woman is man. The head of Christ is God. He gets into head coverings and um, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But it's a disgrace for a woman to, uh, to have her hair cut off or her head shaved. Then she should cover her head. Uh, you know, it, it's totally clear uh, what he's talking about. <laughs> But I, but I want to keep going because they're just, I, I don't want you to ever be afraid of these passages, okay? They're, they're not as freighted as we've been told. This is in the context of giving women permission to pray and to prophesy in the church, right? There's nothing here that's saying you, ha you have to be quiet, right? That comes later, but that's because there were women who were interrupting 
the proceedings to ask questions of their husbands. And in those days in the church, men and women sat on different sides of the room. If you used to go to some churches today, very, very traditional, they do that. So, in, so the greatest value was order. And so Paul just gives loads of instructions about order. Now, the head covering thing, are, the, are there universal principles here? Sure. I mean, if, if, if you walked into a church and all the men and women were in bikinis, let's say, you'd have questions about that church, correct? Uh, maybe not. Maybe, you know, maybe, that's maybe your bikini church. and hymns is our next move. Um, but, but, so, but, but here's the point. Head in this passage, and there's a ton of great scholarship, can mean authority. It can mean source or point of origin, or it can mean preeminent, the most honored part, or it can mean your physical head, right? So Paul's talking about covering your physical head, but then he's talking about metaphorically, man is the head of a woman, and, 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 and so um, I don't want you to be afraid of these texts. The, the reason I prefer the preeminent interpretation here is because Paul's whole discussion is about honor and disgrace. So in an honor shame, he's using all honor shame language, okay? Um, he is not using hierarchy language. And if you want to play the hierarchy card, okay, but then, then the hierarchy is out of order, right? Paul didn't order it hierarchically. He ordered it relationally to make the point he's making. The other, uh, the other point I would make is that the, the word for um, glory that's used a bunch, uh, a man ought to not cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. The woman is the glory of man. For uh, man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. You know, you're like, oh, holy moly. The idea is, um, when he says, like, the woman is the glory of man, the man is the glory of God, the word glory, doxa, can also mean um, reputation. In other words, um, uh, how, and this fits in the passage, how a man treats his head either honors or dishonors God's reputation, and how a woman covers or doesn't cover her head, and this is true in that culture, would honor or dishonor the man. That's absolutely true. Absolutely true. So I think there are incredibly compelling reasons to not read this. Yes, yes, sir. My wife has a question. Perfect. <laughs> let's wait. Let's get a, mic, a microphone over there to her. Oh, you're next, Eric? Okay. Can you wait until after our friend Eric? Perfect. So, anyway, did that, did that make sense? Anything That's you just an example of. Prescriptive versus descriptive. Boom. I'm just showing. Boom. 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 Sorry. <laughs> Eric, um, so Mike, your white paper was based on 1 Timothy 2.11. Yes, Gar. It was, it was foundational to my theological perspective, totally. which I then imported into the church that I am now leading as we're grappling with this. Totally. Uh, every conversation I end up having with my elder board and with others and within my church ultimately boils back down to 1 Timothy 2.11. So help yes. me understand yes. how your perception of 1 yes. Timothy 2 has changed yep. because, yeah, yep. help me understand. No, I love it, Eric. And I was hoping the paper would come up because I went back and read it and went, A, I needed a lot of work as a writer. And B, <laughs> I was accurately reflecting the tradition I'd been handed. And um, just, this is just for Eric, this little point, but this is super important. 
the second part of the paper, I base everything off of what gar means, right? That G-A-R, that, and and because it's translated into English as for, and I thought it only could mean because. So um, why should you be silent and not have authority over men? Because Adam and Eve, and then he gets into that. Actually, there's a, there's a gar right in a couple of verses ahead of that that isn't used that way where gar can also be used to introduce new information. So we'll get to it. But you know what? Here's what I want to do. And, and forgive me if this is boring, but I, I really, I just printed out 1 Timothy, and I want to go through it really quick. Okay, because here's what Paul's doing. First of all, um, Paul is confronting a heresy. So I'm going to highlight, now none of you should take notes on this. I just want you to hear it, because I'm going to go through it so fast. I want you to hear the words he uses to describe the heresy. Secondly, the heresy seems to somehow have involved women because he spends a ton of time in chapter 5 dealing and classifying with widows and rebuking widows. Then we're going to hit the Timothy 2 passage, and we're going to go word by word through that thing because every single word of that is contested. Every single word. Now, great complementarians are going to have answers. We'll have answers to those answers. They'll have answers to those answers. Absolutely. So then you have to ask yourself this question. What better explains the biblical data? An interpretation of one or two max, very confusing, obscure verses. Or the arc of the scriptures, and then we can go into Genesis and talk about where, where I think we, re, we misread the hierarchy there. Make sense? So I'm not talking to you. I'm just talking against myself 10 years ago. Um, all right, so he starts, and I, I know this is boring. I'm so sorry, but I can't help it because I'm tired of Timothy. I'm just tired of it. Um, I'm tired of it. So First Timothy 1, here we go. As I, I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrine any longer or devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. So we've got doctrine, myths, and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculation. So now we got speculations rather than advancing God's work. I'm, I'm going to skip a little bit and, as I go through this. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or so confidently affirm. Now, do you hear that part? They want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about. So here we've got the first introduction that somehow these people are wrapped up into teaching, right? They're teaching something. We know the law is good if one uses it properly, and he goes on to talk about that. I thank Jesus that he did this, blah, blah, blah. Um, at the end of chapter 1, um, some have rejected the, this faith, and he teach, he. he among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Now that phrase is going to come back to provide a real, an explanatory phrase at the end of chapter 2. It's a real ninja move. Oh, it's so good. He's setting something up. All right, so these are my notes on chapter 2, all right? <laughs> so I'm not, I, I'll go through the rest of 1 Timothy and then we'll come back to it. Sound good? But he says, first of all, I urge, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And then he goes on, why do I urge this? That we may live peaceful and quiet lives in godliness and holiness. 
Now, what I'm going to argue is that Paul's driving concern is how his community is being perceived. He's going to use all kinds of language to talk about this is a missionary letter as much as it's a pastoral letter, right? So that becomes super important. So notice, I urge, first of all, da-da-da-da-da, why? That we may live peaceful lives. And then he does this little worship thing. And then he says, therefore. So the therefore is connected to the urging that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be done. Why? Um, so that we might live peaceful and quiet lives, right? So he's dealing again with the issue of order. And he uses the word quiet, the same word he's going to use later about women, which is just fascinating. So quiet in this instance is an attitude and not like a literal silence. Preview. <laughs> and I know, Eric, you've, you've heard a lot of this stuff. Then he gets into qualifications for overseers and deacons, but notice... Uh, in the case of an overseer, they must, um, they must manage their family in a manner worthy of full respect. They, must, they uh, must have a good reputation with outsiders. Again, Paul cares about this. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect. These are outsider words. The women are to be worthy of respect, right? He cares about how this is being seen. You jump, and I'm skipping a bunch. You jump to four, and now he gets into the teeth of the heresy. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. I wonder how Paul feels about that teaching. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They, they do two things, forbid people to marry, and they abstain from certain foods. Someone's tracking with First Timothy back there. I like it. <laughs> Right? So, and then he gives creation, right, as a remedy to abstaining from certain foods, blah, 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 blah. Are you with me so far? Again, I'm not saying you have to buy this. I'm just saying here's where I go with it. You jump to chapter 5. Now he's talking, he's got three, uh, he's got four paragraphs on widows. Now why? I mean, it's fascinating. So, um, oh, and by the way, give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need, but then he starts giving circumstantial advice, almost like they needed guidance in this way. If a widow has children or grandchildren, they should learn first to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. Give, these peop give the people these instructions, and then notice why. So that no one may be open to blame. Do you see what he's doing? Now, he does this in all of his household codes. Right? He cares about how the Christian church is being perceived. And then he says, no widow may be put on the list of widows unless she's over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for her good deeds. Again, what are good deeds? Public displays of faith in Jesus. Uh, and then he repeats that command. Younger widows. Now, here's where we get interesting. Do not put them on a list like that. And again, we can talk about what the list was. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. They thus bring judgment on themselves because they've broken their first pledge. We can talk about that. Bonnie can. But besides, <laughs> besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but they are busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children. What's he going to counsel the women in Ephesians to do? To be saved or preserved through childbearing. Just interesting. Why? 
to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some, in fact, have already turned to follow, turned away to follow Satan. He then goes into generosity. I know, guys, I'm sorry. Um, all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be what? Slandered. Again, this is all missionary stuff. Uh, he then goes to, these are the things you are to teach and insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ into godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. And then, now this is where, buddy, this is where we get a glimpse as to what this heresy actually consists of. At the end of chapter 6, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care, turn away from godless chatter, and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge. Now, bro, you know where that word's headed, right? Gnosis. So we have examples from late first century, early second century teaching of a, a strain of Gnosticism that was very embryonic, that taught you should not marry, you should abstain from certain foods, that reversed the order of creation, and that argued that Eve, because she was the first one that ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was the one who, was, who could allow people now to enter into gnosis or the saving knowledge. I know this is totally confusing, but what I'm trying to explain is the language that Paul's about to use in two is directly attacking this view. Make sense so far? Maybe, maybe not. All right, we're going to two, and then, Bunny, you want to add anything to this? I'm going to add between the lines. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm, no, no, I, I mean, it's just, it, it's one of, it, well, okay. All right, all right. All right, so um, notice, we're back at two. I urge then that prayers, petitions, blah, blah, blah. Why? So that we would live quiet, peaceful lives. And then notice, he says, for... There is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. Now, again, there, there, there's a for that's not a because. There's a for that's adding new information, right? So God doesn't always have to mean because. That was, that was a big one for me. But therefore, so what's the therefore, therefore? We want to live peaceful and quiet lives. I want the men everywhere to pray, right? Because he urges prayers, petitions, intercession, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing, and then, Joy, give me an amen on this. Paul switches from plural to singular here. So the translation is, I want men, plural, everywhere to pray. I also want the woman. It is singular in Greek. The woman to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning then plural themselves with not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who, who profess to worship God. A woman, singular, singular. Now that can mean a woman as in all women, or it can mean a woman, one woman. Sh should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman singular, to teach and assume authority over a man, singular. So one of the things that English doesn't give you is the idea that he's switching between tenses. And the weirdest freaking place he does this 
is when he, in verse 15, he says, but women, singular, will be saved through childbearing. So the woman will be saved through childbearing. Now, again, I just find that so fascinating. And maybe you're going, I don't know why that's fascinating. <laughs> because even if you go to Bible Gateway, it will give you footnotes that say this could be talking to a husband and a wife. Okay, anytime a man and a woman are addressed like this, it is most often in a husband and wife scenario. Now, not always, and this isn't a slam dunk point, but I've never heard that point acknowledged, that he's switching from they men and they women to a man and to a woman. Now, maybe he means them generically. It totally could be, but let us continue. <laughs> a woman should learn. There's the only command in this verse. Right? The only imperative is a woman should learn. And my friends, right, this was not a command given by men to Greek women. Right? This was not, like, don't, don't ever lose the force. It's like, it's like taking 1 Corinthians with head coverings but missing the point where it says, yeah, but women can still pray and prophesy. Right? This is like, no, no, a woman should learn. And then in quietness, well, what's quietness mean? Oh, well, it's just, the word's just been used to live quiet lives. That doesn't mean just silence, right? That actually means uh, in, a, in a manner appropriate to a learner, right? Um, um, another word would be like calmness or stillness uh, and full submission. Now, full submission to what? Does it say to men? Right? We don't know, but I, I read men in there instantly, but it's just not in there. Quietness and full submission. I do not permit. Now, Eric, I know you know this, right? The tense here is really interesting because the way Paul phrases it in Greek is I'm not currently permitting, right? And you can read all the background arguments for that. I'm not currently permitting a woman to teach uh, or to assume authority. The huge debate is, okay, what's teach mean? What does assume authority mean? And are they related? And, and again, oh my goodness, you guys, I mean, hundreds of books written on this. On what, is assume authority positive or negative? Is teach positive and negative, or negative? And is it teaching that assumes authority or just any kind of teaching? All of this is so massively up for dispute, my, my friends. And again, I mean, we can get more. I'm just, and then he says four, there's your gar. Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing, even if they continue in faith, hope, and love with holiness and propriety. All right. So again, man, I know I'm rambling, but doggone it. When he says, I do not permit, the word there, he uses it other places, that is a temporary restriction word. It's not a permanent word. Check, this, check out your Greek lexicon on this. It literally means a limitation due to a circumstance. It is never used in the New Testament as a permanent ban. So he uses it, I'm not now permitting. Right? That's, that's why that matters. We don't have a single instance of that uh, in any other way. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now, again... No, I have no proof other than what the text gives us that we're dealing with some sort of Gnostic, like embryonic heresy. But it would certainly make sense if that was the teaching that the counter to that would be, no, 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 actually, 
Actually, Adam was created first. Now, we'll get to Genesis and show that Adam wasn't created as first, as we, we've all been taught that he was created first. But for, in rabbinic thought, and Paul echoes the thought of his day, Adam was first, and Eve was deceived. All right? It doesn't mean Eve was gullible. It simply meant that Eve... Now, and this is where scholars really debate on this. Joe, I'd love your thought, and Bonnie, I'd love your thought on this part. Because the deceived bit... There's a big debate about whether or not Adam taught Eve the command, whether he taught the command well to her. And that why he's bringing up Eve here is because she wasn't taught well enough by the man. And so she was, she was deceived because she was not educated. And so, like Eve, these women have been deceived, not because they're women, and not because they're gullible, but because they've been deceived because they've not been properly educated, Annie, um, can you let me go for a second? No. I mean, it's, it's, I'm, it's, I'm almost done. I know, it's so painful. I don't know if it's so good, but it's almost done. Um, and then this idea that the woman will be saved through childbearing, what does Paul recommend later to the widows? Right? To get married and to have children. Uh, why? So as not to be slandered by the enemy. I mean, so you have this consistent Adam, Eve, Satan thread that's going on here. And, and so all that is to say, I don't know if it made any sense. I don't know if it's helpful at all. But, but here's what I see in 1 Timothy. A, he's dealing with a heresy. No, there's no question. This is corrective. Don't minimize that point. He is correcting something here. Secondly, it involves women. Obviously, spending all the time on the widows. Thirdly, every single word of that sentence is disputed. Absolutely. And I think better cases rest on the egalitarian side of this. Now, I will say that no side perfectly captures the, the verse. Neither side does. But is that enough of a reason to make a permanent ban on 70% of the church? I just don't think it is. I don't think that's grounds enough, all right? And then, and then I do think we can provide clear counterexamples to Paul letting women speak in church. Now, if prophesying counts as teaching, then Paul contradicts himself if we understand this as a ban. Because in 1 Corinthians, he's telling women to prophesy. Right now, I don't know. Some say it doesn't. Okay, whatever. But the point I simply want to make is that the flow of 1 Timothy, which is never brought into the discussion, really seems to have woven in the idea of, okay, being handed over to Satan, but I'm worried about how outsiders are going to see this, just like household codes, and the Adam and Eve bit. And, um, and so for me, anyway, I think that's reason enough to say, I mean, the I'm not now permitting, I, there you have it. I mean, end of story to me. Um. I think that was a really rapid fire, and you deserve a round of applause. No. <laughs> that was like Timothy in two minutes, <laughs> or ten. Um, I just want to make a point further of like why that actually matters. Um, for some people, it matters for an elder board discussion, or for some people, it has, like, we need that exegesis in there. Um, but I find it so ironic that the heresy and the things he's talking about, um, we just see that in our church now in the way we're told. Like, how many women here have ever heard to you or someone you know or in a book or passing comment 
that you can't be trusted because Eve ate the apple and she was deceived first. All the time. So you can't be trusted in what you say. You can't be trusted in what you do. You can't be trusted to be alone with a man. So, like, we see that in church. Yeah, yeah, we see that in church all the time. We see this type of thing being played out. So when we don't know what the text is saying, it shows up. It shows up in our churches. So if a pastor has an affair, it's probably the woman's fault. And then we see it in culture. If you were raped, it's because you wore that. So it really matters because there's a huge cost more than what we assume. Like, oh, some of us might have, like, politely like went somewhere else in our head but we have to go back there because it actually has a big cost on society it has a big cost on what we're told as women and it actually tells the world that we can't be believed as women and frankly I'm sick of that so we got to do our work well I don't and and I want you know I kind of want you to do some of this too because I don't I know you got this and I don't want to be the dude you know yeah, doing the dude thing, and you, you know, I mean, you know what I'm saying, like. But I'm so excited. I like. I didn't really prepare that, and that makes me stressed out. So I, uh, <laughs> I uh, would rather do what we're doing now. Now, <laughs> just just thoughts, because I'm gonna kick myself for forgetting a whole bunch of things. Um, the ar- the overarching argument is: is this accommodation or is this ideal? And I think the missionary thrust of the pastoral letters, I think the fact that it's corrective, um, what, oh, that, sorry. I thought you were offering tea or something. And, um, and, uh, yeah. and, uh, and, and the fact that I think we can provide compelling counterexamples to this um, is reason enough. I really do. I really do. And, but notice, this is a conversation about the Bible. This is not a conversation about feminism. This is not a conversation about culture. This is a conversation about the text. So, so even if, if, like when I'm dealing with complementarians, what I get tired of hearing is that I've left the Bible. And I'm like, mm, you know, I really don't think that's the case. Uh, this is a biblical discussion. All right, but did you want to follow up at all? Or do we want to go to Annie? Yes, 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 yes. Absolutely. So the the conclusion of the white paper was headship is kind of the limitation. But again, here's what I didn't know, because some scholarship has just come out in the last few years that is just a wrecking ball on the Wayne Grudem, John Piper piece that everyone still quotes from the 90s, right? And and all they showed, all they showed is that kafale, or however you pronounce it, could mean have authority. That's all they showed. They didn't even show, that's not the majority reading in New Testament lexicons, right? So um, the preeminent reading, and I forget the, I'll have to look up the scholar for you. Um, that, that one, I think, makes much more sense in some of the, like the Corinthians passage that I would have used as, as headship. Now, the Ephesians one's interesting, but, you know, we can get to that later. Boom. Weren't you next? It's Annie Broger. Someone back there has the mic. Oh, sorry. Okay. Well, then, nope. She Hi. gets the mic next. Okay. Uh, my name is Tracy, and I'll try to be coherent and not get into too much trouble. 
So I it's appreciate okay, Tracy. both of you expanding on Genesis, the, uh, the ideal versus the accommodation. And Genesis, we're also taught that he created man and woman in his image. So, yes, Imago Dei, thank you. So when we pray to God the Father, is that the ideal or is that the accommodation? The, the word Father? The just, image Father? It's just that in, um, in my introduction to poetry, especially 20th century, 21st century poetry, so many times when the poet's referring to God, they ascribe a lot of feminine qualities or feminine yeah. pronouns. But, you know, coming from our evangelical background, we look at that as like, oh my goodness, they're saying something about God that they shouldn't be saying. Right. Um, and I just wanted to hear your thoughts on it because I think that um, it's time for, for some, you know, either liberation or freedom or just yeah. setting things right. Yeah, so great question. Um, I don't know if we will agree on this, so this shall be fun. Um, oh, let's get heated. It's hot in here. Okay, so um, my understanding is that God both includes and transcends both genders. So um, we see, like you said, all over Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, um, if you look at the Hebrew, you see masculine and feminine pronouns being used. Um, we also see, like, we see a picture of, like, where it says, like, God, um, like, takes people, like, takes his children under his wings. That's a very motherly thing. Um, a passage that I felt that, like, really identified this for me in a really beautiful way um, is that, like, first let me just say, I think that we inherited and used the father for many reasons, one being the patriarchal culture that we talked about. Um, Second, we don't all speak Hebrew, and the Bibles we have, that's what we have. Um, so I feel awkward saying this, but I'm saying it. So I translated a Bible, and um, one of the passages was um, Ezekiel 37. Because it doesn't say anywhere you can't translate a Bible. It doesn't. <laughs> so so let's get around the, the teach and authority. Yeah. We'll just translate the I'll thing. just do that. Um, I don't know. It's just in my bones. So, um, in that passage, for example, right? Like the passage is about, um, Ezekiel and he's walking through this valley of dry bones. And then the God says like prophesy to the bones. And then we see this image of the bones coming together. And then the focus is always on the fact that the bones made this great army and they're like ready to fight. Uh, that's a very male understanding of the passage. That's a very Western understanding of the passage. That's a very, like, gladiator understanding of the passage. Um, and so if you look at the Hebrew, it actually has this beautiful thing. Every time it mentions Yahweh, it says he. And every time it mentions spirit of God, it's she. And so if you read it in light of that, what's happening with the bones coming together and 
<laughs> and it's connected, the, the bones become connected with tendons and flesh comes Say on it. the bones. That's womb language. Come like on. that's what happens when women are pregnant. And so it's this idea that God acts like a woman to us in that way. He takes care of his kids as a woman takes care of her children. And so the passage about is about Israel has lost their way and they're in the wilderness and they are wrestling and figuring out what to do next and God is caring for them them in this cocoon, womb-like environment. So they become an army out of the strength of the womb, but the emphasis is not on that, but we miss that entirely. So if we don't put those images in and we don't put the correct pronouns in, we miss the beauty of that whole thing. You can disagree if you want. I just, I was just saying because we said, I didn't know. Oh, I have nothing to add. Great. No, I mean, I love, Paul even uses the image of a breastfeeding mother. Yeah. To talk about his relationship to the church. And so, I mean, I, I, it's one of those, um, there have, there have been times feminine language has been used of God in ways that orthodoxy would deem heretical like around the worship of Sophia or other, other things. Joy, can I get an amen? But that, but that doesn't mean that, it, because well, the, the point stands from earlier, right? That there, there haven't been those small edits or sort of um, de-emphasizing the places where it's really, really clear that feminine language um, and feminine qualities are used of God. Um, so I do think there's there's a limitation. I mean, one of the things I've I've tried to do as I've gotten older is to try to talk less of he and him and more of just God. You know what I mean? Um, and you know, the complementarian point is well, God. We refer to God as Father. Jesus was male. Disciples were male. Priests were male. But it's so. also that language of that culture. If you're in a patriarchal culture, like you said, and you're trying to borrow language and it's like a missional context, like mm-hmm. you would have to use that in order for people to even understand what you're talking about. Yeah. Did yeah. that help? Okay. Anything else? Yeah. Andy. 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 Here, Andy, you go and then I'll go. <laughs> Hi, Sarah. You can go first. That's fine. Oh my goodness, I don't even really know what my question is, but I'm really thankful that we're having this heated conversation. I don't want to stand up, sorry. She does not want to stand up. (laughs) Mostly because my whole body is like, whoa, like feeling this whole thing. So to stand Mm. up would be like, oh my goodness. Um, I think to both of you, like Mike, when you were talking about how, um, for whatever reason, I might have missed it, maybe because of wine, I'm not sure. But this idea of going back to mm, so much blame being put on Eve, Mm. right, for her bad decisions, and how much there has been this conversation of an anger towards women, Mm -hmm. and it might not get talked about a lot, but it's Mm -hmm. underneath the surface, Mm -hmm. which then feels like my question's like all over the place, I feel like. Do it. But then it feels like there's an underlying untalked about conversation about the hatred of the feminine, mm-hmm. which I would love to talk about that because that's not just in women, but that's in men as well. Yeah. Um, so there's that. And then I think that some <laughs> of us women wonder about 
Why is there so much emphasis put on Paul's words and not so much on Jesus's actions with women? Mm. If Jesus, if we believe that Jesus is God and how he showed up with women over and over, mm-hmm. doing so much, right? Mm-hmm. Teaching theology, mm-hmm. showing them their value and importance, that they have minds and a, a brain and a heart that is powerful and important and valuable in systems that aren't valued. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I wonder about all these things. Like, what do... Mm-hmm. Oh, and then I guess another part of my question is, <laughs> why, why is it so hard for some people and some men to deny the pain of women in our stories? Mm. Because I feel like if we could, like Jesus, encounter the pain of people and really listen to their stories, maybe that would change our conversation about things. Mm but it seems like that's really hard for us to just connect with. You know, mm-hmm, it's hard for us mm-hmm. to connect with each other's mm-hmm, true mm-hmm, stories. Mm-hmm. And so I, I feel a huge block sometimes, especially when I talk to men, about like, oof, but do you hear what how this affects me to sit in church over and over again every Sunday and know that I don't have a place on the stage? I don't have a place on the elder board. But it hurts, but mm-hmm. nobody wants to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, uh, mm-hmm. it's so big. Sorry. <laughs> it's like I have so, like, 10 million questions. And I love it. But then we have these, like, you're talking about the story in Ezekiel, right? Where right. God is totally like the womb, like God. And Jesus is saying, I want to gather you together. And what do we right. do with all that? What do we do with well, Jesus let me go, and all I, this? I want to go, go after the Eve thing for a little bit because when I always read Eve was deceived, um, I read that as Eve made a mistake. But the text doesn't say that. The text says Eve was deceived. The reason Adam's held responsible is that Adam was disobedient. So that's the contrast. Adam was disobedient, Eve was deceived. Do you understand the difference? Well, but but that's not how it's portrayed. Because if she was just lied to, like she she doesn't know, but Adam knew. Joy, am I right? No, no, but no, but this is a, no, no, but this is a really big deal. That that when it says Eve is deceived, it's not saying it was Eve's fault. It's saying the exact opposite. Okay, that she was deceived. That it was not her fault. The reason Adam is held responsible is because he was disobedient. Now that is like blew me away. I, why, why isn't it taught? Well, we can go. That's, that brings us into the rest of your, rest of your question. No, I mean, I mean, some of it's fear, for sure. Some of it's traditionalism, for sure. Some of it is, and you even have this in the first century, right? There was this, Joy, did you see this? And I'm sorry I'm talking so much to Joy, but I've never met you and I've wanted to meet you. Oh, really? Um, this is your yeah, I know. So, you guys, it's, I thought you guys were oh, like college best friends. <laughs> Oh. oh shoot, Joy. Let's hash it out later and see if we become closer, like Gombus, and then. You are loved and welcomed here. 
Oof. This is actually just proving the Adam point, so it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> it was the seem that Adam was just dumb. Is that, is that, what, we're, is that what we're saying? No, 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 no. I, I forgot what I was going to say. Can I jump in then? Well, of course. Okay. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Um, what you feel about a hatred of the feminine is real. I just want to affirm that in you. Sometimes you can feel like a crazy person when you think that or say it. And people look at you like, you don't, that's not my experience. Um, it might not be, and that's great for them. It is for a lot of us. Um, I was accused, we were talking earlier, of being the liberal co-host by using words of like privilege and stuff, so I'm just doing that anyway. Um, If men are privileged in society, okay, and then in order to see a woman's pain would mean they would need to acknowledge that pain and acknowledge a privilege, a, let's give it a, say, structural privilege, that that exists. If we do that, then what happens is we might end up making the woman equal. And so if you're used to being here and someone else is down here, if you bring that person up to your level, even though everyone's just being equal, sometimes equality to you will feel like oppression. So for somebody on top to bring an equal player into the game, it actually threatens them and threatens their place. So a lot of times, people view equality as taking something from them. We see that all the time. We see that in race. We see that in gender. We see it all the time. But our problem is that that's actually not what's happening. That's what we assume is happening, and so we really grab a hold of it. So that's been my experience about why men don't listen. Um, also, like any of us, sometimes we have really deep beliefs that are inherited, and we don't either do the work or know how. And we don't know how to ask questions, and it just kind of goes. But to Mike's point earlier, um, there is no framework for Mike to understand what it's like to be me in the same space. So I have to do twice as much work to get you to listen to me because I'm a woman than he does, but he, does, he would never understand that. And that's not his fault, it's just the way it is. So there has to be an understanding and a working towards empathy on everybody's part. So I'm not gonna blame Mike for not knowing what it's like for me because he just doesn't know. But at the same time, I can work towards empathy and giving grace, but also educate him, and then he can do the same for me. So there has to be a coming together of both of those things. Well, no one, I mean, no one in the church is willing to live out Philippians 2, right? Paul is so clear that the prevailing attitude towards everybody else is that the interests of others should be placed ahead of yourself in the same way Jesus does. And so no, every, every ounce, I, I'm exaggerating, but I'm tired. Every ounce of the way we do church goes against that, right? It is all about power and hierarchy. I mean, it just is. And so what ends up happening is that, that we just codify and spiritualize Genesis 3 um, and call that biblical, you know, so we, we actually adopt the accommodation. And, um, and so for me, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And where I see it most is with my sweet little girl. To raise a daughter, I've never obviously done that before, um, 
in, in this world with the conversations we're having that I never had to have with my son, that no one ever had to have with me, is it's absolutely mind-blowing. And so I just, none of us, none of us can understand that. Um, and, and in our non-understanding, there's nothing really else to say. I mean, I can't, I can't fully understand what it's you know, been like. But you can listen and then believe her. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like so what happens, I think the breakdown is some people listen and then be like, well, that wasn't my experience, so I, I just don't believe you. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Any, anything else? Oh, no, Sarah was next, actually. Oh, I got right. a question. Yeah. Go, this Sarah, go. This is an easy go. one. Hi, everybody, I'm Sarah. Um, so, Mike, like 20 years ago, circa 20 years ago, I know we still look as young as we used to. I remember going to a camp of some sort. Yep. We sat in two different rooms, and we talked yep. about the role of women. Yeah. We talked about the role of men. Yep. Remember that one? And then there was a swapsie. Yeah. We had the, the women talk to the women, the men talk to the totally men, then we radical. had a swapsie. And I remember sitting there wide-eyed and getting stuck on this verse in 1 Peter. It starts with, oh, yeah. wives in the same way submit to your submit yourselves to your own husbands. But that, that, didn't, that wasn't what got me. No. What got me was a little bit lower down, and it Come said, on. rather, you should be that of your inner self, that unfading beauty of a gentle <laughs> and quiet spirit. Do you remember me asking you this? And I, I, went, remember, I remember you wrestling to I, not be that was wrestling going, Mike, I love the Lord, but I do not think there's anything that would be called gentle or quiet about me. How does this fit? And so I guess my question is, you know, a little bit to the, um, a little bit to our cultural norms of what a woman is supposed to look like. You know, I've been, a, I've been a leader and a bold person since I was two. How does that fit for many of us in this room? Brenda, you're right there. You know, that, that are, are that person and have to still have a gentle and quiet, quiet spirit, want to follow the Lord, but want to also step out in our awesome gifts. Yeah. And, and by the way, he answered it really well 20 years ago. He wasn't that judgmental, I promise. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> I, I'm sure I, I was offering marital advice, too, after being married for six months. So, <laughs> you know, what, what, what can you do? You want to go a little bit on that, or you want me to? No, I feel like I am so gentle and quiet, so I've nailed that. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm I don't know if I'm right on this at all. But my suspicion is that the concepts of biblical manhood and womanhood are absolutely tyrannical in the way that they're weaponized against people who don't fit those norms. I don't, I don't see any, I shouldn't say it this strongly, but I'm on East Coast time. I don't see any, um, and, and again, this is where our complementarian friends will strongly disagree. Um, when, you, when you name the woman as responder, and named the man as initiator. And that's all you say. Um, I think that does incredible damage. Not only are you anachronistically reading into the text, I think, but secondly, um, it is very, very clear there were all kinds of different human personalities, right? I mean, you would never, <laughs> right? I mean, no one would have looked at Deborah and said, hey, there's a gentle, quiet spirit, <laughs> right? I mean, you just, so, so, Paul is saying something very specific 
Um, and again, he's offering household codes, right? I mean, it's the reason why, or Peter, excuse me, in that instance. But Paul does the same things, right? We make it our ambition to live a peaceful, quiet life, to work with our hands, right? All of that language is about giving enough credit to Roman societal expectations so that we're not accused. Because we don't, why forsake the gospel over head coverings, right? Why forsake the gospel over um, Christian women who act like the new Roman women are acting in, in utter sexual liberation? So he is pushing against something, absolutely. It's just that we turn that into personality characteristics or spiritual characteristics that I don't think was, were ever intended to be read that way. So do you have a gentle, quiet spirit? I would read gentle, quiet spirit in that instance as one who uh, is devoted, one who listens, right? Because quiet, I think, is an attitude of listening. Um, one who um, uh, is tender towards the Lord. Now, again, I'm reading into this, but it has nothing to do with what your personality is like. I think it had to do, like, posture. Yeah, posture before God. That's what I was trying to get at. Thank you. No, it's good, Sarah. I remember you. It's oh, so fun, by the way, to look across the room and see all these familiar faces. So um, we are actually at time, but it seems like there's still a few questions, um, and I'm people are asking if they could still ask. Are you guys good to keep going for a few more minutes? Great. One thing I just want to... Um, well, there was you. one clap. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I see nodding heads a lot. So, um, But I actually just want to see if you guys can say anything to this. You're talking about quiet and gentle postures. But we all have to remember that women in this society didn't get the opportunity to learn. So I think that that may be why they're using the word quiet. So I don't know if you have anything to say on that. And then this gentleman has a question. Can you, I'm sorry, Brenda, will you ask that again? You were saying that um, women didn't get, oh, in the side of the text? Yeah, I, I feel like maybe the reason why this kind of narrative and word and language keeps coming up in this context is because women in this culture and this society were not learners. I mean, they, they were not able to be learning the text the way that men were able to learn the text, but now they are permiss permitted to be engaging in the text in a way that they have never been permitted culturally to do. So I, I think that that speaks yeah. to a very strong undercurrent about maybe the posture before they teach, before they may step out, yeah. is that they may need a little bit of time of immersion. Absolutely. So that, I just wanted to make that point and see if you agree. Here you go. Yeah, I agree totally. I think it's um, they're learning how to learn. Yeah. You know, can I make a different point real quick before we get to your question? Um, the, one of the big critiques against this way of argument, uh, argumentation is that it opens the door for other things. Um, because what we're, what we're suggesting is that the text comes to us, um, is authoritative, but uh, has to be improvised upon. In other words, there aren't things directly addressed by the text that we have to do the hard work of discernment uh, to think about. And I think one of the, the, the deep fears of our complementarian brothers and sisters is that, that they immediately say, well, you can make that exact argument for gay marriage, for the welcoming of LGBTQ folks into the church. Because um, uh, it's, it's not just the textual. So I'm, what I'm saying is they're not just objecting to the reading of the text, they're objecting to the way the Bible is approached. 
And I've heard this said from many of our, uh, from several people that um, we do not need these outside references, dictionaries, histories to help make sense of the text. We have the text. And, um, and, and I think that's a big point of disagreement about, um, uh, it, so the, this is bigger than just male or female. This is about how you approach the Bible too. And, and where, where that can go if you start approaching it this way. Because literally, anytime I've talked about this, that's the first question is, well, you could make the same argument for gay marriage. And I'm like, well, maybe, but even if you could, doesn't mean my argument is false. Right? I mean, that's, that's, that's not, that's not, it. yeah. Anyway, so uh, I just wanted to throw that out to say, because I, I really do, I mean, I, there's some really, I can hear in my head all of the complementarian rejoinders. So I'm not just presenting this as a slam dunk case. There are a couple of points tonight that are slam dunks, absolutely, that are totally convincing to me. But there are lots of, there's lots of pushback. The goal isn't for you to agree with us. The goal is for you, as Paul writes in Romans, to be fully convinced in your own mind. Right? This is not a matter of salvation. This is a matter of conscience. And so uh, there are women who I think should not attend uh, churches where they do not feel affirmed. There are women for other reasons who could. Um, I think th there's no law on this. Um, I, I just want to make sure that we listen to all the counterpoints too. So much of what I read are the complementarian perspectives that are pushing back on this. Because I think for a lot of us, we deeply want to honor God, right? I mean, and if the text says this, we don't want to do it just because culture is saying it. And I want to honor that, and I want to respect that, because I've been exactly at that, at that place, you know? Anyway. Hi, uh, my name is Samuel, and Hi, Samuel. I have a, just a quick question. So I was at a forum similar to this uh, just like two weeks ago, and I, I asked a question about, and they were on the other side of the spectrum, and I asked, um, and it was just open, so it was, about, it was about anything, and I asked what their view on was women in leadership and women as elders, and they had the opposite view of you, and the guy made a point that kind of stumped me, and the point he made was, he said that he quoted Ephesians 5 about men being the head of the household and all that jazz, and um, he he equated it kind of how if a woman is a leader in the church, he said, that throws off the, the balance in the ho home because they go to the church and then like, like the man submits to the woman in the church and then they go home and then the woman submits to the man in the home. And I was like, like I, don't, I didn't agree with it, but I was like, I don't know how to come back, like, you know, how to think about that. So if you could share some wisdom. All right, so Ephesians, another one of these fun wives submit things. Um, and, and the argument I want to make is that even if uh, Paul, we understand Paul to, to be submit in the sense of authority, that what he then follows that phrase up with is so unbelievably radical, none of us would use the word headship in a modern sense to describe it. Okay, that's the biggest point to make, right? Head, whatever head can mean, the minute you bring in Jesus' sacrifice as the example of it, does not mean boss, for crying out loud, right? So, so I'm fine. If, if you want to grant the entire compliment, uh, complementarian argument on this point, great. Then show me what head looks like based on the rest of the text. And like I said before, the head and body image 
that Paul is using is he reverses so dramatically as to be unrecognizable to ancient readers. Nobody, and I'm just speaking, let's say complementarianism is true. Nobody, nobody in the history, I mean, that I know of, ever said to men in a Greco-Roman context, love your wives. Never, not once. You did not owe them that under That's law. Second degree citizens, essentially. Women. Absolutely. Well, you were yeah. the property of the, of the, the eldest male. In yeah. um, to varying degrees over the course of the empire, you had the ability to kill them or exile them or whatever. But um, uh, when Paul, <laughs> wives submit to your husbands, well, duh. That's not news. Of course, that's what they're there for, right? But the minute he then adds this whole other thing about the head, the preeminent part, sacrificing itself for the less honorable part, if you take the language to be uh, understood in a complementarian sense, like I said, you just don't get boss out of that. You, do, you just do not, all right? So even if you read it, as, yep, he's the head of the house. Oh, good Lord. How that got translated into the, the man makes the final decisions about household matters. It's not, that's not in there. And that's not what this means, right? I mean, he, uh, so, so let's go to Ephesians. Uh, and, and this, and this is one of those verses that's so, beautifully yanked out of contest. And if you need to go like this young man right here, go ahead. Um, and this young man, uh, evidently they're related and they have sweatshirts and cool hair. No, um, what are we talking about Ephesians? Okay, but, but, but I know some of you will know this, but when you get to the households, our English Bibles do a disservice because I've got a paragraph break and an introduction of a new heading. But the whole thing starts, my friend, with submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then it says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. The problem is the word submit isn't in there in the original language. It's borrowed from the sentence before. So the, the Greek literally reads, um, sum, it's like submit uh, uh, one another, Christ, reverence for wives to husbands. It doesn't even, it doesn't even repeat the command. In other words, you cannot read verse 22 without reading verse 21 first. It makes zero sense. So what Paul's saying is the predominant ordering of human relationships, and he says this in Philippians 2 and other places, is that there should be mutual submission. He's then going to take that and apply it to a household code. Now, household codes, man, I'm dying. Uh, introduced by Aristotle, and this is what your complementarian friend was referring to, if you want a perfect state, the way you have a perfect state is you break this, the ordering of the state down to its smallest communal level, that is the household. And so the man serves as the middle, as kind of the fulcrum. He is the husband, master, and father. Okay, He, is, he has the power like we've said. But what Paul does here and in many other places is he, he accommodates the gospel to that, but then introduces dynamics like, hey, submit to each other. As an example, wives do this to their husband. But then husbands, let's love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now you've introduced something into that dynamic. He even does it with Philemon. Philemon is one of the best examples, very popular book, where... Um, <laughs> 
Philemon is a slave that's um, run away, or Onesimus is the slave, and Philemon's the master. And, um, and Paul is interceding on, on behalf of this runaway slave to be received. He says, receive him as a brother. Now, nobody did that. No, you would never say that to a slave master, to receive a slave as a brother, right? But that's a very Christian idea. So what he takes is the, the paradigm. He's not overturning slavery, right? Because that would have got him crushed by Rome. But instead, what he does is he accommodates to that reality, but then introduces a Christian dynamic. So what, what Paul's doing here, even if you understand this in complementary terms, is he's introducing a gospel dynamic that says, okay, how did Jesus love the church? If you're the head, do that. Now, I think head can be, I, I think head here is close to authority in this particular instance, but, but again, I think it's so redefined uh, by a cruciform understanding of headship that you wouldn't recognize it as headship. You wouldn't call it that. None of us would look at that and say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's the boss. Right? That this is head servant, head sacrificer. This is something far bigger than that. So what I would argue is that the, that the church and the family, and this is a big point we made back in the paper, right? The, this idea of headship. And so one p- counter to that is that headship can mean a lot of different things depending on context. It doesn't always mean authority over. Secondly, um, headship, um, um, uh, what time is it? (laughs) Yes, exactly. I got got up at five Ohio time. Okay, I I don't mean that to be excuse. I'm just so tired, Um, which is an excuse, I guess. But the second thing I would say, headship is radically redefined then according to the cross. Third thing I would say is um, the idea of headship being fleshed out in kind of American nuclear family imagery. I mean, that's just not, that's just not there. Does that help? I don't know if I made any sense. Do you, can you clean yeah, that up? No. <laughs> hey, Brenda, can I get a bu- uh, some water? I'm, um, just, I'm dying. You, yes, you, did. you want mine? I don't know. We've never shared a water bottle, so <laughs> I just felt rude not offering. Uh, it's totally cool to pass. I would have. Okay, so I think you did great. I think what the point he's making, though, is the way that we order our families traditionally in terms of the nuclear family, like like he's saying, is not at all what the text is talking about. Um, and I, I would argue if your church has a woman leader and you go home and you're like, well, now I'm confused because the woman submits to me, I would argue that you should look at your family unit a bit. Um, our house doesn't run if my husband doesn't do the laundry and the dishes. Like, I um, have some roles and he does some things, but it's literally based on, like... But notice, but notice, the roles get turned into laundry and dishes, right? That's not... Paul's not even... I mean... But this is how it gets fleshed out, right? Is well, the woman's place is... Yeah, exactly. It's to do this and the men's place is to do that. So look so, at Cy because he's doing these things well, that are... Okay, come on. So even when you switch them, it, makes, it's, it fools people into thinking, oh, see, they're mutually submissive or whatever. But to his point, like, that's not even what's happening. Like, that has actually zero to do with what Paul's talking about. He's actually talking about, like, learning and posture and... Um, like seeking out our relationship with God. It's like this mutual submission idea of like loving and serving the other. I mean, that's why like he talks about like, and I think it's 
Philippians when he talks about Jesus like having the most privilege because he was God and then he pours himself out like that's the whole point of the whole thing is that anytime we find ourselves in a place of privilege we should be pouring ourselves out for others so that's what he's talking about not dishes and laundry and bills and if women were leading house churches there was no it's not like you were going somewhere else and saying oh Oh, a woman's leading here. I mean, you, they would never have gotten that permission, right? That had to start somewhere. And, and in fact, I don't know if you guys saw this, but there was a piece of, three pieces of pottery. Um, Joy, come are we on the same freaking wavelength? Um, that showed as early as the fourth century, right? Is a fourth or fifth? But in a, in a period where we have little record of what priesthood was like, that men and women were both offering Eucharist at the altar together. And again, it's just one of those, one of those things where the picture that's been portrayed as a very patriarchal church for a very long time, why would we overturn that? Well, and here's evidence that, well, actually that's not true. Here's, here's a woman administering the Eucharist next to a man. Interesting. Hi guys, oh, my name is yes. Jim. Yes. Yes. So, could the American evangelical church's interpretation and execution of the Great Commission actually be perpetuating the disempowerment of women? Because Ooh. we use words like kingdom and advancing the kingdom, Ooh. and that's very aggressive and assertive and territorial and somewhat kind of militant type in its language. And so even as we engage, you know, global ministry and we're going forth and going and, you know, taking territory back from the infidels and baptizing them in the name of Jesus and the women can come, but you do the Susie homemaking. Could that, even as we're trying to do that from here and trying to participate globally as, as kingdom builders, be perpetuating this idea that that's men's work and women, you don't really get to play in the same way. I think we're perpetuating a lot there, probably. Um, yeah, <laughs> I think, to your point, for your, to your first question, yes. Um, I think absolutely there's a sense that like men do this and women do this, and that's all you do. Which, I've wanted to make this point a lot, and I don't even know if it fits here, but I would like to say there's a huge difference in the world and in the Bible, the difference between leadership and authority. So there are a lot of leaders in the world that don't have any authority, but they act like they do. And there are a lot of other people in the world who have authority, but they're not paying any attention to. And so I see a lot of women in that second category. Um, but any time we are talking and we are ever using military language, I think that's not only advancing a certain type of understanding of what the gospel is and who Jesus is. I think it's also advancing like our white Western ideals on a global community, and so we should just never do that. I have nothing else helpful to say besides no. Um, <laughs> But to to that point, the good news is that we get an opportunity to change that. So one thing that um, I love about, like, we had a guest on the podcast. They wrote a book, Keys, Matt, and Walsh are guests. 
And uh, they wrote this book called Romans Disarmed. Is that correct? Okay. And it's a really good book, but it talks a lot about that. And one of the things that they said in there is that the word gospel, actually, and good news that we use a lot of times in our language about the Great Commission is that it was first actually used by the Romans. And it was used that any time there was a military advancement by the Romans, they went and they said the gospel or the good news of Rome has been spread. Because what they did was conquest, exactly kind of what the same language we use. is like we went and we took that territory. So the truth is, is if you are a privileged member of society and you heard that the good news of Rome advanced, then that was good news for you too. Because if you have power, then you're going to get more power. But if you are a lower member of society, if you're a woman, if you're a slave, um, and you heard that the good news was advanced, that's not good news for you. Because that meant if there's more power, you got less. Um, if there's more privilege, you also got less. And you also knew that when more slaves and more women were going to come into your town, you knew what they went through to get there. So if we want to use the word good news and if we want to do the great commission and we want to build our church around that and that call, then if we have to make sure that the way we're doing it and who we're doing it and who we're including and who's in and who's out, if it's not good news for everybody, it's just not good news. So anytime we're using language or doing things and it leaves somebody out, it marginalizes someone, it pushes someone further into that, we have to rethink it. Yeah, Paul never uses military language except for um, discipleship. He never uses it, of course, for evangelism. And I think the way we even see the term practice, whatever the practice is, uh, is very, uh, we're learning not only off-putting to people who are trying to do this, it's very confrontational, but it's ineffective and, and it actually hinders, uh, hinders the gospel. So I think that's a really interesting point, Jim, as always. All right. All right. Um, well, can I, can I go to the restroom? I'm dying. I've been oh. drinking water, <laughs> and can I just? I didn't want to just get up and leave. <laughs> I think if you leave, everyone's gonna go. So let's I'm, say. But goodnight. I'm gonna go if I okay. don't leave. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so yes. While you're running to the restroom, why don't we set the stage for the music, and then. Um, I want to give Mike a chance and Bonnie a chance to just share a little bit about what's going on with Vox and where things are at. Um, but Bonnie, you know, I'm curious if oh, no. you have some thoughts on this and maybe you want to step over here while they bring the, oh. the mics on the stage because we're going to hear again as we mingle from Chad and Kristen and Lauren. Um, what do you think about elder boards? What would you say to elder boards? Um, just I mean, it's really hard. It is. It's really hard. It's really, it's hard to talk to them and it's yeah. hard to hear the, the desire to serve the Lord and mm -hmm. to honor the text and sit in front of them and watch them yeah. still not have a place for women. What do you, what do you say to elder boards? Um, I don't say much to elder boards. <laughs> really. Um, but I've been there and actually I had a similar situation. I was at a certain church and they told me you can preach. And then it came time to preach. And then they said, no, you can't preach. 
And so I wrote the elder board. Like, what in the world? I don't understand. And um, they sent me back just like sort of some key points on that. Um, but at that same time was um, like sort of a call for them to um, make, like support women pastors in India. And so then I said, well, like, why is it fine in India, but it's not fine here? And they um, just sent me back, like, the same regurgitated points. Um, and so I just, this is my personal opinion. Mike probably has a much more graceful and eloquent thing to do. Um, but for me, I know who I am. I'm fully convinced also what the scripture says. And I also fully believe when we take part in communities that perpetuate something, it perpetuates something and something and something. Yes. So it's about the thing, but it's about everything else around the thing. Yeah. And um, so I think you can and have, like this Come is on. weird now, should Come I go on. sit there? Yeah. Come on over. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think you can and have permission to um, talk and discuss, but I don't think... Um, it's always something that you have to continually get hurt over and go to bat over in a sense that makes you vulnerable. I right. think you can go to bat and you can talk about it and you can pray about it um, when there's been some distance maybe and it's not hard and it's not, um, I mean, it's always going to be hard, but it's not hurtful because um, I just, I think you also have to look we all do a little bit, but have to. We have to take care of ourselves. Yep, I think that's really true. Yes. So I, can't, I think it goes to this um, perspective, and I'm just going to set up a shameful plug for this awesome podcast. Oh boy. Um, and I'm going to get out yeah. of there. <laughs> but it kind of goes to this point of curiosity, and I see a generation. Uh, you look across the room, and for those who are seasoned in this room, and you're here, thank you. But thank you to all you Gen Xers and all you Millennials, and I think there might be some Gen Zs in here. What, what are you doing with Vox, and what are you doing with this posture of curiosity that is not happening in the church? And can you take us and tell us a little bit more about it? And again, shameful plug, on your way out, grab this, because you can find them on all these channels, and you're going to be able to listen to more of what they have. Yeah, so um, Vox is really a place that we've kind of dubbed like a home for the spiritually homeless. We have a ton of people that listen to it because they don't feel like they fit into all these different categories. So um, we really value a few things. We value authenticity. We value um, being, in process. being in process. We value permission to ask questions, permission to wrestle, and permission to disagree. We don't agree on everything. And like Tim's so loud on there. Uh, just kidding. <laughs> Tim's like the only voice of reason on the thing. Um, but we, we really value learning how to have discussions and learning how to hold things loosely and hold things well with integrity. Um, and we also really value to talk about absolutely everything that you never talk about in church. So um, we have a new podcast episode every Monday. And we come on there and we just talk about all the things we talk about. <laughs> listeners, we do. I mean, we talk about everything. And um, it's been a really great home. It's given me permission. It's given a lot of people permission, but to come into their own expression of spirituality and of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Amen. I totally agree. 
No, it's really, it's really been absolutely amazing. And with the thing that's so fun about Heated is it embodies so much of, of what we hope to accomplish, a place where people can disagree and, um, and wrestle through really deep topics around faith and culture and be it, like allowed to ask all the big questions. Um, and not, you know, again, I don't always think our answers are awesome, but the, the voicing of the questions is the point. And so it's been four years of like surprise. It's kind of like a blog, like for instance. Um, it's amazing what happens if you don't know Kristen. Oh my Thank you for listening to the Vox Podcast with Mike Erie, Bonnie Lewis, and me, Tim Stafford. Please visit our website at voxpodcast.com for show notes and tools to share Vox with others that you feel might benefit from the discussion on faith and doubt and culture. Also, we'd love it if you'd take a minute to rate us and review us on iTunes or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. It's always very helpful. Vox Podcast is funded by donations from like-minded listeners that find this to be a safe place to discuss anything. Vox is a 501c3 nonprofit community. If you have found Vox to be helpful, and if you have the means, please consider helping us out with a monthly donation as small as $5. You can search for Vox Podcasts on Patreon.com or on Tithely, which is T-I-T-H-E dot L-Y. Or if you visit our website, VoxPodcast.com, you can get to either of those through the links. All financial gifts are tax deductible. We are grateful for your partnership, for your support, for your voice, and for your presence in this community. Thank you.